Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Ted Shetler and Michael Lerner as they discuss Ted's new book, The Ecology of Breast Cancer. Ted Shetler, welcome to the New School. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Ted, you are the science director of the Science and Environmental Health Network and the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. And we have worked together on environmental health issues for many years. You're a, uh, a recent um, uh, new resident of Bolinas, the small town where Commonweal is based. And we worked hard to get you here, and we're very grateful that you came. Uh, you have uh, written a new book um, called The Ecology of Breast Cancer which is uh, an ebook. It's available from download, on download from the Science and Environmental Health Network website and also the Collaborative on Health and the Environment website. Um, and I, I cannot disguise my enthusiasm for this book, so I'm not going to try, uh, because mm-hmm. I, you asked me to write the preface, and I said in the preface that I thought it was a necessary book. Um, but I think it's more than a necessary book. I think it's a deeply important book. Um, because to my knowledge, um, there hasn't been a major effort to frame breast cancer as an ecological disease before. Is that correct? Have you run across that in the literature? I don't think I have, yeah. no. I, I've, I've seen reference to that terminology for other uh, diseases occasionally, but I don't mm-hmm. recall seeing it for breast mm-hmm. cancer. And really, seeing breast cancer as an ecological disease uh, in the framework of our broader work uh, through the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which for those who are new to this is a, a partnership, uh, what, about 12 years old, of uh, close to 5,000 health professionals and scientists and patient advocates around the world that has listservs on science and breast cancer and cancer and learning disabilities and neurodegenerative diseases and asthma and so on, you know, like a dozen or 15, 20 different listservs. Uh, But this ecological framework really has come to inform all of our work at the Collaborative on Health and the Environment. I think that's right, uh, for at least for many of the diseases and disorders we're interested in. Um, and I, I think it's a sort of a natural outgrowth of, of um, recognizing the complexity of the origins of many of the diseases and disorders that we're interested in, and that actually um, are really prominent in society today. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think across the things that we're dealing with in a major way in healthcare, things like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, various kinds of cancer, asthma, various neurodegenerative disorders, and so on. Every one of those is sort of a a complex disorder that arises out of system conditions, and they often tend to co-occur. And so you see individuals who commonly have two or more of them, uh, as well as having them arise uh, in populations of people as they adopt, for example, other countries as they industrialize, the disease patterns begin to shift more like Western disease patterns. 
And so it just suggests that these conditions are arising out of a set of ecological conditions. Um, and I thought and continue to think that using that terminology is useful because it, it opens us up to thinking about how do we uh, sort of study these diseases and think about interventions as an ecologist might do it. Right. As, as opposed to using a biomedical model that's looking for a precise, that's the cause or that's the intervention. But think about it, shifting system conditions. So actually, I actually think it leads us into a, a different kind of conversation. And this is why I think it's an important book. Um, I think it's a very important book um, because that's such a shift. In other words, if you look where the research dollars are going today, they're going into cancer at the cellular level, right? And then you point out at the, in the book that there's the cellular level of analysis, and then some people say, oh, it's not just cellular, it's the tissue surrounding the cells, right? And then pe some people say, okay, it's not just the tissue, maybe it's the broader environment. But to take an ecological perspective, uh, as you say, from the ecological sciences perspective, is to see breast cancer as a set, the result of a set of nested hierarchies of organization. You have a beautiful chart in the book. Can you talk about some of the different levels of nested hierarchy that you Yeah, see? I think that's one of the things that the ecological analysis actually provides is this, because uh, ecologists look at a complex ecosystem and they are fully able to uh, and do see individual organisms uh, often gathered in communities. Uh, sitting within a, a slightly larger uh, level of organization, um, a landscape, a, a meadow, a beach, uh, an interface with the marine environment and the, and, the, and the land environment through a saltwater marsh, all of which is sort of nested within climate, weather, uh, rainfall, sun, and so on. And the notion of hierarchy there is not to say that one is more important than the other. It's simply a way of sort of recognizing this uh, progressive nested uh, set of conditions. And uh, the other thing that uh, then follows from that is, is to recognize as being primarily important the interactions across those levels. Mm -hmm. Not a secondary importance, but primary importance. That, 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 that community level variables influence an individual organism within that organization. Similarly, the, the individual is influencing the environment, the community environment. And we, of course, see in human, uh, we apply this to the human uh, uh, perspective, we're seeing how we can influence the global climate mm -hmm. uh, because of human activities. So I, I think that, that those interactions uh, and very dynamic interactions that change over time. And I think time is the other dimension in that uh, ecological framework uh, that is very important to keep in mind, that there are dynamic changes in these uh, interactions and the way it plays out, I think, in the story of breast cancer, for example, is that we're continually reminded how important the timing of exposures are, the timing of events are. So fetal development, puberty, adolescence, and so on. Different set of conditions during fetal development as opposed to adulthood. Mm -hmm. And in, in your discussion of the ecological framework, uh, you talk about how in the ecological sciences, they study what is called regime shifts in ecosystem. What is an eco a regime shift and how does that relate 
to looking at breast cancer as an ecologic disease? Well, some of the features of ecological systems are that sort of they have a whole vocabulary that uh, uh, arises around it that have to do with things like resilience or vulnerability, where the structure and function of an ecosystem uh, may be uh, quite resilient and resistant to uh, perturbations that either come from the outside or from the inside. Um, and uh, similarly, it may be vulnerable because of con system conditions and be close to a threshold. And ecological systems, uh, when they approach thresholds, um, the entire structure and function can suddenly change. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when that happens, the whole system goes over into a different set of operating conditions from which it's difficult to return. Uh, so, uh, examples that I give uh, in, in the book are, for example, how uh, gradual changes uh, in a landscape in Africa, for example, suddenly led to a rather rapid collapse into the sub-Saharan desert. Uh, and we're never going to go back to, to what it was before, at least not in our imagined time. Uh, there are plenty of examples in, in marine uh, 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 and freshwater biology where lakes uh, or, or, or uh, coastal oceans will suddenly uh, completely change the structure and function because of nutrient overload or some other uh, perturbation that comes uh, from the inside or, or that's introduced. Uh, and, and then the fish populations change uh, and they're not coming back. Uh, so, it's, it, so very often these changes are not the result of some single vector coming in and changing everything, but it's kind of death by a thousand cuts. Well, it can be either. It can yeah, be a one. single vector can come in, right. and if a right. system is close to a threshold, that may push it over. Right. But it can also be yeah. death by a thousand cuts. Right. Uh, there, are, there are examples in, uh, that I came across in looking at economic environments and so, so, some social uh, circumstances where certain what appear to be kind of minor changes in employment or, or other uh, economic factors can suddenly cause a collapse mm -hmm. of, of, of a community structure and function. And I think we see it. Uh, certainly it's happened in many communities in the Midwest in this, in this country where uh, because of changes in farming practices and other economic uh, uh, sort of circumstances that came in from the outside, the, the communities look very different now than they used to. When we were talking about the book and you were thinking about the title, um, there was a lot of conversation about the title. I'm very glad that you named it The Ecology of Breast Cancer. Um, first of all, I think it has poetic power. The Ecology of Breast Cancer, The Promise of Prevention and the Hope for Healing. And actually, I ran across one friend who's here today in Bolinas who said, I'm coming tomorrow. I said, yeah, I think it's going to be great. And she said, The Ecology of Breast Cancer, I just love the the name of it, you know? But we had other friends who uh, emailed uh, me and you and said, you know, I wish Ted had called it many paths to breast cancer. Or, you know, in other words, the, the fear is that by calling it the ecology of breast cancer, you end up, you know, preaching to the choir of a group of people who like ecology as a frame. Whereas we could also call it complexity theory in breast cancer. We could call it many paths to breast cancer. We could call it cumulative impact, which is the word in environmental justice. There are many, many different phrases. Um, why ultimately 
knowing the politics of all these phrases, did you decide to call it the ecology of breast cancer? Well, uh, a number of years ago, um, it, it just seemed to me that uh, breast cancer research needed to uh, at least be open to taking a different approach. Um, that if you look back over 100 years of breast cancer research, it's, it's, it's been an approach, whether it's in the laboratory with animal studies or test tube studies or whether it's epidemiologic studies in people, uh, the, the idea has been let's control a whole series of variables that we know are somehow related to breast cancer. We'll take the usual risk factors that we know about. Uh, uh, family history, uh, genetic predisposition, early puberty, uh, 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 late me uh, menopause, uh, and so on. The Lack late, of breastfeeding. Uh, yeah, and late, like uh, late pre pregnancy or having no children. I mean, those recognized risk factors for breast cancer. And let's control for all of those. And then we'll see what changing uh, a single variable is, uh, alcohol drinking or cigarette smoking or exposure to this chemical or exposure to that nutrient and see what influence it has on breast cancer risk. And that is simply not the way an ecologist would approach this. I mean, I just thought that the ecological sciences had something to bring to this conversation. Uh, and that's why, that was a major reason that I just thought that there was a, there was an argument to be made for constructing a, a different kind of model from which to then design research studies as well as to contemplate interventions mm -hmm. uh, in, in, with people who have breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So uh, that c came out of the field of ecology and I just thought that, that mm -hmm. it deserved attention and it was sort of the genesis of the name. You know, when you were talking uh, in, uh, in uh, one of the uh, uh, early sections, it may even be the introduction, um, you talk about uh, breast cancer as a design problem, essentially. And you talk about uh, its increased prevalence with industrialization and how proposed solutions confront complexity. And then there's this beautiful quote uh, in which you say, I don't remember which, whether it's the introduction or later, you say, at a population level, one or two variables do not stand out as overwhelmingly responsible for changes in breast cancer incidence. Rather, it is a complex mix of interacting multi-level variables strongly pointing to a more systemic problem. And so... Uh, it just seems to me that that perspective fundamentally shifts our understanding of breast cancer. In other words, how many billions of dollars have we spent on genetic research on breast cancer? How many billions, you know? Uh, and, um, and we haven't cured breast cancer, right? We have not done it. Uh, and uh, so isn't it time that we look at what the evidence is actually pointing to which is a complexity model, an ecological model, and deal with the consequences, which are profound. Yeah, I think so. You know, one of the important words in that quote is at a population level. Right. Because uh, in individual people, right. uh, we can often find uh, 
a variable that might help to explain. Right. You know, why did a 20, you know, a 35-year-old woman get breast cancer and we look back and find that she had Hodgkin's disease and she had a lot of chest irradiation mm -hmm. when she was an adolescent? Well, you know, that, that may be really important, probably is really important. Mm -hmm. But at a population level, we can't say it's all chest irradiation at, in adolescence that's responsible for the changes. So... Uh, I do think that, that we, we need to acknowledge the importance of these individual risk factors. I think there's a strong argument to be made. We really have to stop unnecessary irradiation of children in emergency rooms or hospitals who are getting excessive radiation. And the president's cancer panel, which you mentioned previously, uh, had that as a strong finding in their, in their final report, is to eliminate unnecessary medical radiation. Uh, Similarly, we should be doing all we can to make certain that adolescents aren't starting to smoke. Um, but at a population level, um, we find that all of these individual risk factors are scattered out among us. But I do think there's value in thinking about their interactions and figuring out in this complexity, when you start looking for interventions, you don't look for, a, there's not a single intervention that's going to really shift system operating conditions, most likely. Rather, it's going to be multi-level interventions. So there's something there for the individual to do by all means. And individual behavioral things are important. But that's where most people stop, particularly when they're sort of coming from the biomedical model. But I argue here that there's something here for city planners, there's something here for teachers, there's something here for farmers, for government, uh, I, there's something here for everyone that has an opportunity to shift these system operating conditions that result in the breast cancer patterns we see. And I suspect strongly that if we do it in, in wise ways, we're also going to have a beneficial effect in reducing the burden of a number of other complex diseases that sort of arise out of the same system conditions. Well, that's the deal. That's, that's the deal. That is the deal. And, and this isn't, I mean, this conversation that we're having builds on 12 years of complex conversations in the Collaborative on Health and the Environment where we have looked in detail at Parkinson's disease, at asthma, at learning disabilities, at infertility and pregnancy compromise, at a whole set of different diseases. And again and again, you know, not in the detail that you've done this, but again and again, uh, it points to a wide variety of risk factors at all these different levels, uh, you know, moving into, uh, you know, different biological systems, entering common final pathways, and therefore, your kid with a learning disability, it's the same deal. At a population level, you know, there may be a hundred different reasons what, about for, or, you know, autistic spectrum disorders or infertility or you just did a, a, a set of workshops on asthma where the, uh, where the ecological complexity model was embraced, wasn't it? By uh, we did. We, we, uh, this was an, this was an a, uh, undertaking in Massachusetts where uh, it's the first state that actually has, as part of their state asthma management plan, uh, a, a portion of it which is devoted to the primary prevention of asthma. Yeah. Not how do we improve uh, outcomes in people who have the disease, but how do we primarily prevent it? And, uh, and so 
the outcome of that uh, that conference was uh, to acknowledge that this complexity model actually was suitable for asthma as well, and that it's a systemic problem, and that primary prevention is undoubtedly going to require multiple multi-level interventions, and there's something there for lots of people to do. Uh, including people who uh, figure out where to build schools, where people figure out where to put highways through communities, as well as attention to things like smoking uh, and so on. So uh, there, there are a lot of similarities. Similarities. The details may differ from one disease to another, but 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 there's a lot of similarity in the model. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the uh, this is at, at one level a kind of a side point, but not completely, because I mentioned my colleague Oren Slosberg, who recently joined Commonweal as Chief Strategies Officer, and we're actually trying to figure out language that describes this curious organization. Um, what are the, are the commonalities of the 12 different programs at Commonweal, which are very varied? And Oren has been pointing to... Um, something very much like, as a matter of fact, inspired by a conversation he had with you, this ecological framework. And what it made both of us think about is that the Commonwealth Garden is a permaculture garden. And permaculture actually is a beautiful articulation of um, an approach to sort of starting with the homestead and the garden next to it and you know how you design the homestead with the garden on your own property, and then how that spreads out to the village, and how the village spreads out to the community, and how the community stretches out, and so on. And it seems to me um, the bad news about the ecological framework is complexity. But the good news is that there are, just as there are a thousand potential causes, there are a thousand potential places where you can intervene. There is space for everybody to intervene. And any intervention in the system is likely, that is beneficial is likely to improve outcomes in a wide variety of places. You just can't tell where. That's right. I, yeah. I, but I also think that uh, in the ecological framework, uh, one can be strategic in picking interventions. Absolutely. Because if you acknowledge primarily these intersections, uh, interactions and feedback loops which get set up, I mean, if you draw models of this and people try to do that, mm -hmm. uh, they, they're messy. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're just a bunch of lines and arrows that intersect and it looks like a, a web. Uh, but if, if, if you sort of get this overall architecture in mind, you can then begin to identify strategic places to intervene. So you intervene in places in this model, for example, that where you have a feedback loop that you want to promote because it has multiple beneficiaries downstream, that's a good place to intervene. If you see a feedback loop that's actually leading to more vulnerability and disease, that's a good place to intervene to try to stop that. So looking at these strategic intervention points, identifying them for, for magnifying downstream effects that you want is, 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 a, is a way these models are actually useful. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. So let's look at the design of the book. It has uh, three segments, section one, is an ecological framework and two chapters on the history of breast cancer and evolution of ideas about its origins. 
Section two is called Looking Within the Complexity, and there are five chapters on diet, exercise, chemicals, electromagnetic uh, exposures, and stress. And the final chapter is called Redesigning for Section is called Redesigning for Prevention and Healing and summarizes the risk factors in a more integrated whole, the implication for individuals, families, communities, healthcare providers, public officials, and others who can make a difference. I'd like to start, we're not gonna be able to go through it all, uh, but I'd like to start with the first chapter because you go back to Hippocrates and Galen. Uh, people know Hippocrates, but Galen was, his dates were 130 to 200 um, uh, uh, AD and and Galen believed that he saw breast cancer more in melancholy women uh, uh, in whom a substance there were four substances that Hippocrates and Galen believed were involved in health and and so there was a preponderance of what was called black bile but most interesting to me that melancholy women who were creative kind and considerate and I just thought to myself, what an interesting perspective that 2,000 years later, that still resonates, you know? I'm not saying, I mean, there's a huge literature on the cancer-prone personality, and as you mentioned, people look at things like, um, you know, uh, anxiety, depression, grieving, and so on. But it's just, without passing judgment on it, it's fascinating that that perception from almost 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, still has resonance. Yeah, I, I was fascinated by that as well. Yeah. As you can see, when I started yeah. diving into this, uh, for each of these chapters, I ended up going back, way back in history, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. uh, was interesting and explains why it took so long to do this. Uh, <laughs> um, but the idea that there was a cancer-prone personality and the cancer was not, was not a disease of, of, of a tissue, of an organ. It was a, it was a systemic disorder mm -hmm. was, that was, uh, arose from personality or mm -hmm. organism level. And uh, that was very prominent and lasted for a long time until uh, uh, the microscope was invented um, and people started to be able to see uh, cancerous cells mm -hmm. under the microscope. And that shifted people to more to a sort of a cellular level of interest, uh, which of course bore a lot of fruit and, and has been very helpful, but, but left behind sort of the, uh, the, more, uh, the higher level of organization, whether it's a personality or as, as many cancer biologists now are saying, yes, the cells are important, but the surrounding tissue is also important and other features in the organism. And so we see, for example, now some of the hallmarks of cancer are beginning to talk about the importance of general systemic inflammation as supporting cancer. Well, that's a, that's a systemic, that's an organism level phenomenon. So we're, we're sort of doing this dance between the, the, the personality, the person, the general physiology, specifics of the tissue and finally the cancer cell. And as you mentioned, so much, so much attention has been paid in contemporary biomedical research uh, to the cancer cell and within the cancer cell to the gene abnormalities and figuring out where the pharmaceutical intervention is that we can come up with that will sort of uh, address that genetic problem in that cell. And that's, or, or that hormone receptor. All been very helpful, but keeps running into its limits. 
Exactly. Um, there's a um, there's a study uh, in Denmark that you reference of the relationship of mammography screening to outcomes. Um, could you say a word about what that study found? Yeah, that was an interesting study uh, that actually was repeated because uh, the first time uh, it wasn't believed, but it was a study in which uh, a, a large number of women were uh, identified who did not have breast cancer, uh, and one group was followed with uh, yearly mammography screening, uh, and the second group was screened only once, and that was at the end of six years. So the anticipation was that at the end of the six-year period, there should be similar levels of breast cancer in the two groups. One group that was screened once at six years, the other group that had been screened yearly for six years. The idea being, well, we're going to pick up some cancers early in the women who are repetitively screened, but at the end, we're gonna have similar numbers in the two populations. And what they found was that there were 14% fewer cancers in the, in the group that uh, was screened only once at the end of six years. So that seemed to suggest that at least some cancers that are picked up on mammography would spontaneously regress. 14%. 14% in this study. Uh, well, I said it was repeated because the first time the study was done, the critique was, well, this happened at the time when hormone replacement therapy had been identified as a probable risk factor for breast cancer and maybe the women stopped taking it and that could skew the results. So they went back and repeated it with the population that, that, uh, that was done before before, before hormone replacement therapy had been addressed. So, yeah, and I think that this is, uh, this seems to me to have a parallel to the conversation that's going on right now about uh, carcinoma in situ, or DCIS, uh, ductal carcinoma in situ, or lobular carcinoma in situ. These are, uh, some people say, the precancerous lesions. Uh, there's a recent argument going on, or discussion going on in the medical literature, so we shouldn't even have the word cancer in the title of that lesion because it causes overtreatment. But the reality is that some will progress to invasive breast cancer and some won't. And, and, the, and the challenge has been, the problem is to figure out which ones will and which ones won't. Um, and so I see a, a sort of a parallel with that Denmark study is that there are, there are things about the general physiology and tissue environment and so on that uh, are, are going to influence whether DCIS goes on to invasive breast cancer that has kind of a parallel uh, in my mind to this whole notion of spontaneous regression of cancer. Mm -hmm. You're listening to a conversation with Ted Shetler and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. Now, in a related way, there was a, uh, a program, project in Finland called the North Karelia Project um, which wasn't about cancer, but you find it relevant to the... Uh, could you describe that project? Yeah, the North uh, Karelia project was uh, started when it was discovered that a portion of Finland, I think up in the northeast corner, as I recall, had the highest cardiovascular mortality in the world. Mm. Uh, and uh, it, was, it, was, it was noticed at about the time that the first results of the Framingham study were coming out. The Framingham study was started back in the 60s. 
where uh, the risk factors for cardiovascular disease were being identified through a careful prospective study that goes on today. Uh, and so that's when we began to learn about the importance of abnormal cholesterol and fatty acids and high blood pressure and smoking, uh, family history, and the, ver the various collection of risk factors that contribute to cardiovascular disease. What they uh, undertook in North Karelia was uh, a, a comprehensive program to intervene uh, right, uh, with, the, with the hypothesis that we're not going to make uh, progress here on cardiovascular uh, mortality by simply trying to identify high-risk people in an office setting and then advising them about what they eat and whether to smoke and controlling their blood pressure. We have to apply it at the population level. Mm. And they did. Uh, they, they involved not only the medical community, but uh, schools, supermarkets, agricultural systems, and so on, to try to shift uh, those risk factors in the entire population, not just those who were at risk for the disease. And they had a dramatic decrease over the next 10 or 12 years, uh, about a 70% or so uh, drop in cardiovascular mortality in the men. The women, less dramatic, but uh, it was the men who were at highest risk. Uh, and at the time, they had been criticized. You can dig out letters in the epidemiologic journals of the time where epidemiologists were sort of being critical of this approach, calling it shotgun epidemiology. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but it worked. Uh, and uh, there, there just may be lessons to be drawn from that, that we do have to approach these complex diseases that have multiple contributing factors and figure out at a population level how to dampen them down uh, so that we get a, a population-wide response. You know, it's so interesting. Um, again, when you look at this at a common-sense, intuitive level, it's just not rocket science that if you improve the way, people's health practices across a wide range of issues, that not only would cardiovascular mortality decrease, but other other things would change as well. I'd be curious, what else changed? Yeah, I would be too. I don't know yeah. the answer to yeah. that. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, one thinks of countries which are too poor to have the kind of medical interventions we have, like Cuba or Costa Rica, where there are countries in the world where um, public health is a robust part of, of national policy because they know they can't afford our kind of medical treatment. Mm. And, you know, I think of yes. our friend and colleague, Dean Ornish, uh, the really great cardiologist who I believe deserves a Nobel Prize, and um, I hope someday actually gets one. One of his colleagues recently got a, a Nobel Prize. Um, uh, he uh, demonstrated that if you work on diet, uh, exercise, stress reduction, and group support or finding meaning and love in your life, those four areas uh, that, uh, that done systematically and deeply, that one can actually reverse coronary artery disease, that one doesn't need, you know, the bypass surgery. The bypass surgery is kind of a metaphor for our technical efforts to walk, work around things, whereas if we basically just improve health in those four ways. Um, and actually, when we think about your chapters, uh, 
you know, diet, exercise, stress reduction, um, and uh, electromagnetic fields, uh, and uh, and social support. Or social support's part of the, the, yeah, that's part of the stress chapter. Yeah, that's the yeah. stress chapter. Yeah. But you're essentially you're saying something very similar. Um, and Dean has done to in, in addition to showing that you can reverse cardiovascular disease, he's also done some uh, early studies on prostate cancer where prostate cancer stabilizes uh, in people who can do the wait and watch approach to prostate. And the most recent stuff he did, which was fascinating, was he showed that the telomeres uh, could actually lengthen again after they've been shortened by stress. So there's a rejuvenative process. Well, since we know that cancer, breast cancer, for example, increases with aging, right? then if one engages in rejuvenating, health-promoting activities, diet, stress reduction, exercise, and group support, uh, uh, or social support, that this rejuvenating process works against the biological conditions that increase the incidence of breast cancer. I think that's right. And uh, I, I strongly feel, uh, after looking at this literature very deeply, that we have to think about starting at the very beginning. Right. It's got to begin with fetal development and pregnancy. Right. Childhood. Right. Adolescence. I mean, it, it's all important, you know, when we get to be adults and we start to worry about this and then the thing, I'm going to change my diet right. and start exercising. It's great. It's important to do. But uh, I think that, that the evidence, uh, particularly with respect to breast cancer, I, one of the emergent stories, for example, is that Childhood and adolescent diet probably has as big or bigger effect than adult diet mm -hmm. in terms of breast cancer risk. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the nurses' health study too, which looked at started that actually took a, made an attempt to really look at uh, adolescent diets, found that higher uh, animal fat and meat intake in adolescents uh, clearly increased the risk of premenopausal breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Similarly. Uh, studies that were finally able to get back to childhood diets uh, that were looking at the role of soy, found that soy, now this is whole soy product, I'm not talking about processed soy that's in processed foods, but I'm talking about things like tofu and miso and tempeh, often combined in typical Asian diets with mushrooms and seaweed, and that much more protective than soy in adulthood. That these are things about the adolescent diet that fit into this ecological framework. It's childhood and adolescence that talk about helping to set the conditions in which breast cancer is going to be less likely because other disturbances are going to come along that will increase the risk of breast cancer, whether it's exposure to a chemical or radiation or whatever it is. But, uh, but if, if the system is somehow more robust, resilient, uh, resilient mm -hmm. uh, and that can be established earlier. So I, I agree with, uh, with what you're saying, about, but it's a combination of things. So the, the protective role of exercise seems pretty clear, uh, and it's, it's very clear for postmenopausal uh, breast cancer, a little less, well, clear, a little less clear for premenopausal, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's strong evidence. Well, what's the message to children when we take 
uh, physical education or an emphasis on exercise out of our school curriculum at a very time when we really ought to be building it into people's lives. It's crazy. Well, yeah, it doesn't make sense. So, I mean, I think these are some of the opportunities we have to talk about how do we help create these system conditions that are going to, you know, build resilience. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one other, yeah. by the way, uh, that, uh, that I discuss in here at some length is vitamin D. Yes. Um, vitamin D is a very interesting hormone. Mm-hmm. It is a hormone, actually. And, uh, you know, vitamin D precursors are present in the skin or the covering of virtually every animal and many plants and fungi. So that tells us, I mean, it's in evolutionary time, uh, that has been an extraordinarily important and relevant phenomenon that interacts with the sun that hit the precursors to create the biologically active compound. It's a little bit different in plants and animals, but it's the same idea. The sun interacts with the precursors. we are now, because of the way, this is part of the reason why I talk about a design problem. We've designed our lives where we're not getting sunlight as we used to. And when we do go out in the sun, and when our children go out in the sun, we make sure to cover their skin with clothes or sunscreen because we're concerned about skin cancer. And that's appropriate. But what we've done is create an entire population of people who are, have insufficient levels of vitamin D. And vitamin D uh, has a lot of biologic properties, including in the breast, uh, where you know some of the cellular mechanisms have been worked out, how it sort of promotes cellular differentiation, uh, tunes down cellular proliferation, helps uh, in the process called apoptosis or, or, or programmed cell death, uh, actually lowers aromatase levels, which is an enzyme that converts androgens to estrogens, all that is done by vitamin D. Um, and if you look at population level, uh, levels of vitamin D, depending on, choose your expert, whether it's the Institute of Medicine Committee or the Endocrine Society, somewhere between 30 and 55% of all people in the United States, including children, are vitamin D deficient. And in people who are of dark skin, who's, who don't convert, the precursors as uh, readily from their skin, African Americans and others, uh, the the numbers go sky high. So about nine or ten percent of African American uh, uh, adolescents uh, and uh, young adults have really adequate levels of vitamin D. Uh, this sets the stage for, uh, and I should go on to point out that a number of studies, but not all have found a correlation between increased breast cancer risk and low levels of vitamin D. So it's, it's one more fa- feature. So if you look at what the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends, they say that all infants, whether they're breastfeeding or formula fed, should be getting a vitamin D supplement. But it's not happening. Uh, the American Congress on Obstetrics and Gynecology recommends that uh, women who are pregnant if they are at risk for vitamin D deficiency, should be supplemented during pregnancy. Well, based on what I've just said, it would seem to me that most women are are at risk for vitamin D deficiency and should have their levels tested. Uh, But that's not happening. So again, how do we we, uh, sort of address the fetal environment as well as the 
infant and childhood environment. Now, you know that if vitamin D were a pharmaceutical, it would be happening because the industry would have such a powerful interest in promoting it. So, I mean, it just, I don't say that in a tendentious way. It just, no. if, if, no. if fortunes were to be made on vitamin D, uh, we'd all be hearing about it in ads every day. We would, and I, I want to make certain that I say that I'm not suggesting that we should be taking large doses. We should, no, no. You know, because there is an optimal level right. and then you can get too much of it. But, right. but the point is that we've got an entire population that, right. that is at risk for really Absolutely. insufficient level. So let's try to do something very challenging, which is to go briefly through these five chapters, diet, exercise, chemicals, EMF, and stress. And with sort of zen brevity on each one, pick out for each one what you think the kind of most interesting, provocative, or important points are. So if we start with diet, I mean, what's the bottom line? Dark colored vegetables, fruits, Right. Soy, right. whole soy products, right. uh, limited red meat, um, uh -huh. uh, healthy fats, right. healthy fats, uh, monounsaturated fats that are in olive oil, mm -hmm. omega-3s, don't get too many omega-6s compared to omega-3s. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's not a lot of literature in the PubMed literature. I'm sure there's more in sources that I did not have access to or couldn't find. But the literature in the Na National Library of Medicine is limited but pretty persuasive about the value of mushrooms and seaweed. And there's some of the biology that's been worked out in animal studies and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the other- Specific mushrooms, you mean? Well, no, you know, they, the different ones okay. tried. And I'm sure people okay. know more about that than I yeah, do yeah. that really are mushroom experts and yeah. I am not. Mm -hmm. but. Uh, they have a lot of phytochemicals in there that, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, are undoubtedly beneficial. Mm -hmm. uh, a historical bottom line is that, uh, that the diet has been studied as individual nutrient groups, and more recently, dietary patterns are finally getting uh, a, a sort of attention. And we eat food. We don't eat just nutrients. We eat diets and, and plates of food, and so it's the combination of things that I think is important. A crossover with chemicals, but how important is it to try to eat organic? I, I can't say uh, anything with regard to, to breast cancer mm -hmm. and that, because, I, 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 because that would bring in the question about whether or not mm -hmm. uh, pesticide residues are important, as well as whether nutrient density changes, and that depends on the agricultural yeah. system, even, even if it's organic. Some are better than others. Right. But, you, that, but that gets into a larger critique yeah. of, of, of the impact of the food system. Of the food system. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Which we'll, go, we'll yeah. hopefully talk more about. So exercise, what's the bottom line on exercise? Uh, this is really clear. Uh, uh, regular exercise is really important at all ages. And there, there's some disagreement about what the optimal level is. I mean, you get, depending on the, the American Institute for Cancer Research uh, recommends slightly more than one other organization does, but they talk about uh, either uh, 30 to 40 minutes of uh, moderately vigorous exercise six days a week, or 60 minutes a day of, of, of moderate walking. Um, some group would, would say, well look, 30 minutes of moderate walking, moderate speed walking a day is, is adequate. Mm -hmm. But 
it, the evidence is clear. And, uh, and isn't it clearer for exercise than in any of the other areas? Well, um, I, I, Maybe I not. think it probably is. Okay. What's interesting to me, though, getting yeah. back into the model, is you put it together. Right. So, for example, in, diet and exercise. Yeah, That's diet and exercise. Cumulative. So, the, so yeah. there was an intervention study in women with postmenopausal right. breast cancer who showed when you combine the dietary features that I've described that got yeah. you know, the, the dark-colored vegetables yeah. with exercise, I mean, their, their risk of death was cut in half over a 10-year period. Was that the Florida study? I don't, it was the Women's Healthy uh, okay. Living But I, I really want to underscore that one. Because the fact that a healthy diet plus exercise cut mortality by 50%. Yeah, now that was just, just to be clear. Yeah, that's you say postmenopausal? Yeah, yeah, but so even the women who didn't do that, were 86% were still alive at 10 years. Okay, that's really important. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, it went from, you know, it went from 86% were alive went to 93% okay, were alive. that's very important. But it's important. But it's a 50% decrease in mortality, right. yeah. Okay, so excellent. For people who've had cancer, or yes, this is this is an intervention in people with cancer. Yeah, right. right. So, um, so um, chemicals—that's complicated. But what? What? I mean, we've looked at chemicals for a long time. But how would you describe what we know about the role of uh, environmental? Well, I would start by saying that we started studying chemicals late, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and I was interested in why that was the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, what, what, I, what I think is going on is that back in the uh, late 19th century, breast cancer really got formulated as a disease that was primarily related to hormones and hormone systems. Uh, so it was quintessentially a hormonally related cancer. Um, and it, it took a long time for researchers to begin to question, wonder whether or not chemicals could be contributing somehow to risk. Uh, we knew, for example, that uh, chimney sweeps were likely to get scrotal cancer because of their exposure to the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons that are in the tar that they were getting on their skin. We knew f throughout the 19th century that people that worked in the aniline dye industry, this was described in Tom's River by Dan Fig in his book, Tom's right. River. Aniline dye was associated with bladder cancer. So the idea of chemical carcinogenesis was well established, but not with regard to breast cancer. And then one of the great ironies was that there, there was a, a, a researcher by the name of Charles Huggins, who 75 years ago, uh, began using a polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon in rodents to see if he could cause mammary gland cancer, and he did. Mm. And so here was a chemical that they figured out how to, uh, to administer it to rodents to cause mammary gland cancer in the laboratory. He subsequently won the Nobel Prize for all of his work around that, but they were using a chemical to actually induce mammary gland cancer so they could study it in the laboratory. But nobody was asking to chemicals I wonder if it caused breast cancer in people. <laughs> <laughs> and the first time that I can find uh, anything having to do with that is in the early 1970s, when a study was published in the UK which showed that single women hairdressers were at higher risk of death from breast cancer. And it was single women hairdressers because married women hairdressers were classified according to their husband's occupations, uh -huh. 
and therefore their data were completely missing. So there's a whole gender story that's thread that goes through this. Uh, and it turns out that hair dyes in it at that time had carcinogenic compounds in them, not only in the dye itself, but also in the propellants. So vinyl chloride and methylene chloride were actually in the propellants that were spraying the hair dye onto people, uh, and hairdressers were being exposed. Uh, then uh, a short time later, there was uh, a mention of increased uh, breast cancer mortality in women who were working in polyvinyl chloride manufacture in about 17 different factories that were studied. And that was just sort of a small little note in, in one epidemiologic journal. Uh, there was another study published uh, from Canada showing that women who were putting uh, a, an oil on on, on rings that they were manufacturing, metal rings uh, in some manufacturing process, this oil was intended to resist, to help prevent rust, that they were dying of breast cancer and uterine cancer. And it turns out that that oil had compounds in it that we know now are carcinogenic. Um, and uh, th there was another study of women working in a lamp manufacturing uh, facility who were exposed to the solvents trichloroethylene and methylene chloride who had excessive incidence of, of breast cancer. So those were just a little cluster of, of, of studies of chemicals and breast cancer mortality usually, uh, one having to do with incidence. And then it all sort of went quiet until uh, the 1980s when the chemicals in breast milk uh, were, were measured and people began to wonder whether or not those chemicals in breast milk might be somehow related to breast cancer. And so I think that our capacity to sort of do the biomonitoring, to measure the chemicals in biological samples triggered uh, what has become a, a more uh, involved and extensive look, look at, at chemicals. Um, and uh, so we now, have, we now have knowledge of about uh, over, well over 200 chemicals that can cause mammary gland cancer in at least one well-conducted rodent study. That was an analysis that was published by the group Silent Spring a few years ago. Um, they also published uh, what we knew at the time about epidemiologic studies. And I think that the other thing that's happened with chemicals that uh, is, is probably transformative is that uh, is this attention to early life exposure. How exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals and others early in life can alter the trajectory of development of the breast, literally alter the architecture of the breast. This, again, gets back to the system conditions idea, in my mind, so that it's more than, then more vulnerable to malignant transformation later. That's why I think we need to pay attention to fetal development and also puberty, where there's so much uh, rapid cellular division and so on going that, this, that these chemicals can have an effect. Um, and then, in rodent studies, if you combine these chemical exposures early in life, say with a dietary manipulation, you can actually magnify. Or stress. Well, I, stress may be true with animals. I don't know. I that. believe, well, yeah. you're the one that knows the literature, but I think I'm, it may be, it may I'm be pretty true. sure that there, there are studies, you know, the, the classic one that I remember is animals designed to develop cancer, I forget whether they were 
and some were stressed, uh, some were left alone, and others were petted. Yeah. And the petted ones developed the cancers least quickly, and yeah. the ones left alone and the stressed ones. So yeah, I'm I sure. No, I'm sure that that's was, true, but I don't know about its combination with chemical. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. 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 Uh, so. So I think that's where we are. I mean, we have uh, we have a number of chemicals now. Uh, one that's getting a lot of attention these days, of course, is bisphenol A, uh, a chemical to which 93% of the population is exposed. And we have measurable levels of the metabolites in our urine or blood. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we know the fetus is being exposed to the active compound. It's measurable in amniotic fluid. It's measurable in umbilical cord blood. Not the metabolite, but the active compound. Um, and in animal studies, it clearly alters the trajectory of development of the breast, making it more likely to develop breast cancer in adulthood. Now, one of the things about endocrine-disrupting chemicals is that some of them are what are called obesogens, and that they can, at the right doses in animal studies, make some animals obese. Um, and we also know that um, there's an epidemic of obesity in the United States and throughout much of the world. And so the Correct me if I'm wrong, but the dialogue as to what degree is this the food system and the advertising system and lack of exercise and what we eat, but what's left out of Michelle Obama's, you know, thing for combating obesity and everything else is the question of obesogens. But the reason I raise it here is that obesogens not only contribute to metabolic disorders and, you know, heart disease and so forth, but don't they also increase the risk of breast cancer? Well, some of the same chemicals that have been shown to increase obesity in right. animal studies right. are also linked to breast cancer. Diethylstilbestrol is a good example. Right. Uh, women who were exposed to diethylstilbestrol right. in utero are at increased risk of breast cancer in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Diethylstilbestrol is also uh, an estrogenic agent that in these animal studies at the right dose actually can create very obese young rodents. Right, but, but isn't it correct, and please correct me if I'm not right, that obesity is a risk factor well, for breast cancer? Obesity itself, regardless of... Is a risk factor. It's a risk factor for postmenopausal. For postmenopausal. Breast, post-menopausal. Okay. Not for premenopausal. Right. Okay. On the other hand, after diagnosis, right. whether it's premenopausal or postmenopausal, right. weight control is important. Right. Yeah. So therefore, unless the obesity that's created by endocrine disruptors is different from the obesity that happens for other reasons, um, the obesogens are a risk factor themselves, whether or not they contribute directly to... They, they may be. I don't know. In other words, I, I, I know that you obesity, know. independent right. of chemicals, right. totally independent of chemicals, right. uh, is a risk factor for postmenopausal. For postmenopausal and for prognosis after, after diagnosis yeah, with both. Exactly. So let's go on to actually one of the areas which gets the least respect and attention, and some of our colleagues in Shea are just thrilled that you included it, which is electromagnetic field. Well, uh, I, I put uh, electromagnetic fields and uh, radio frequency radiation in a chapter along with vitamin D quite purposefully right. because I, I realized that they're, they're all on the electromagnetic spectrum. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, so sunlight 
gives us vitamin D, and then we have the sort of the visible light spectrum, but below the visible light spectrum in terms of frequency, we run into electromagnetic field and, uh, and radio frequency uh, radiation and, and microwave radiation. Uh, these uh, are electromagnetic uh, fields that do not have the energy that is capable of breaking chemical bonds. And so they don't have the same punch as an X-ray does that actually can damage DNA and cause mutation and so on. Uh, we know that they can cause heat. We use that phenomenon in our microwave ovens to heat food. And you know, if you hold your cell phone, at least the cell phones that I've used, if I hold them up against my ear, I, I get, you can I feel, feel it. I feel the warmth. So do I. Yeah, and I feel more than that, but anyway, I, uh, uh, but... Uh, no, but the fact that you feel more... No, I do, no, I do, I no can question. feel it. Yeah. So, so this ra that, that radiation does not, is not of sufficient energy to break chemical bonds and cause uh, uh, that kind of damage. And so the, the, the sort of the dogma historically has been that if the radiation is not sufficiently strong to break chemical bonds and cause DNA mutations through that mechanism, it cannot possibly be having any biologic effect, particularly if it's not generating heat. That's been the dogma. But over many years, uh, a, a number of studies have been done, whether it's in test tubes or in animal studies and so on, that have shown that electromagnetic radiation can have biologic effects, including altering DNA structure, uh, DNA, or gene expression, membrane permeability, and a whole variety of other uh, uh, health effect, or biologic effects that are spelled out in some detail for people who are interested in something called the Bioinitiative Report, which I have referenced. By Cindy Sage. By Cindy Sage yeah. and, and many colleagues. And yeah. many colleagues. Yeah. So, which uh, is on the website at Bioinitiative. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to a conversation with Ted Shetler and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. So the question, how does this relate to breast cancer? So the bottom line, as you, as you pose the question, uh, is that in epidemiologic studies, there's one meta-analysis that uh, of a number of studies, sort of uh, done through the techniques used in how do we combine studies to look at a larger number, that concludes that there's a small increase in breast cancer risk with exposure to electromagnetic fields. Those are the kinds of fields that come from uh, being around electrical appliances, your uh, electric blanket, uh, and, and so on. Um, uh, and in that meta-analysis, they actually find a somewhat stronger increased risk in men, which uh -huh. is kind of interesting, uh -huh. uh, because that actually may be very, very real. Now, the problem with doing these studies with electromagnetic fields is we don't really even know, or the, the scientists don't even really know what it is to measure. Because you can measure an electric field, you can measure a magnetic field, you can measure changing fields, how rapidly they change, which may be important. So how to do the exposure assessment is not entirely clear. Uh, so that's electromagnetic fields. Uh, some data some epi, epi, epidemiologic studies, two meta-analyses, one of which shows a slight increase in risk associated with them. Radio frequency uh, radiation is what we get from our cell phones and wireless technologies that we're loading up our homes, schools, and communities with. It's uh, slightly higher frequency, uh, just below micro microwave, 
Uh, and there have been virtually no studies on the effects of that kind of radiation on breast cancer risk. But I pointed out uh, in the book uh, that there are anecdotal reports of young women who carry their cell phones in their bras mm -hmm. uh, who are developing breast cancer at an early age. Um, and they develop that breast cancer, uh, according to these anecdotal reports, exactly at the place where they've been carrying their cell phones. Uh, since uh, I wrote that, there was actually, a, there was actually a, a publication in a medical journal about these, beginning to get some attention uh, in the medical uh, literature about these case reports that are alarming because if you think about the exposure, uh, uh, we all know how common cell phone use is and getting more common, and it's starting at a very early age, you know, four and five and six-year-old children. Um, and so uh, we have a, a huge exposure here, and even if the increased risk associated with that exposure is small, if you apply, apply that to an entire population, you have a big uh, burden of disease. So uh, there are ways to reduce the exposure, one of the most important being not to carry your cell phone in an on position close to your body. Uh, and I think this is an important message to get out. But there are, of course, other features of this world that we're designing with all this wireless technology and uh, that's expanding into so many areas yeah. that is causing uh, many people to, to uh, be very concerned. And I, uh, I support those concerns. I think the biology of this is still evolving and it's still a very controversial area. But uh, we think about the latency of, of breast cancer and other cancers that may take years and years to actually become clinically apparent before they're initiated. Uh, the question is, are we setting ourselves up and creating a reservoir of, of preclinical disease that's just sort of going to explode? Um, uh, and we're going to look back and say, that was not a good idea. Right. <laughs> Truly so. And, and I, I really am delighted that the Collaborative on Health and the Environment has for years maintained uh, a listserv on EMF science. It took us a while to get it right uh, because there's so much um, energy and so much strong feelings, but it's now very strongly science-based and I'm really pleased that we're sort of part of that effort. I think EMF is where chemicals were 20 years ago or something in terms of our understanding. and. Um, and I personally am very concerned about it um, and believe that we're way behind the curve. So the last of your Looking Within Complexity chapters is on stress. Uh, and of course that goes back to Hans Selye's work on stress and his view that stress caused degenerative disease more broadly and all the things that have evolved since then. What is the state of the literature on stress and breast cancer? Well, I think the, the literature is fairly strong that uh, stress reduction, uh, particularly for some people, uh, because of their circumstances, is extraordinarily useful as part of a comprehensive approach to breast cancer treatment. Mm -hmm. um, improves quality of life without question. Without question, people. improves the quality of life, and for some people uh, uh, seems to uh, 
really reduce the likelihood of recurrence or delay recurrence. Uh, the reason I hedge there a little bit is only because th that's the stress literature has evolved along with the evolution of medical treatment of breast cancer. And so uh, uh, as, as the medical treatment of breast cancer has improved with certain uh, pharmaceuticals combined with other surgical and, and uh, radiologic interventions, um, it's often hard to say, well, to study stress in that changing landscape. But uh, it seems pretty clear that, that, it, that it has a place. Uh, and when combined with things like uh, uh, dietary interventions and exercise and so forth, uh, you begin to see a, a really magnified effect. Uh, with regard to breast cancer onset, it's an interesting story, uh, which you know well, the, the question about whether uh, uh, sudden life stresses might actually trigger the onset of, of breast cancer or other kinds of cancer. Um, and uh, um, as, I th as I've read about this and think about it, I think it's a plausible argument that breast cancer, that, that uh, major life stresses or chronic stresses uh, over a long time can certainly create the conditions that promote the progression of a previously initiated tumor. Yeah, I agree tumor. with that. Yeah. I don't think it's a tumor initiator. Yeah. I think it's a tumor yeah. enhancer. Yeah. And uh, if you put that together with the recognition that, that we have uh, uh, some subset of people who have preclinical disease, that some of which might spontaneously regress, some which might suddenly speed up, you begin to see the opportunities uh, for for influencing the progression or the remission yeah. of, a, of a previously unrecognized tumor. You know, this might be a good place for me to say a little bit about the background I bring to this conversation, which you're well aware of. For the last uh, 28 years, we've done this uh, Commonwealth Cancer Help Program. We've done 173 week-long retreats here at Commonwealth and helped do another 20 on the East Coast at Smith Center for Healing in the Arts. So I've personally um, done over 180 of these weeks. And, um, you know, eight people would come with, with cancer, most of them breast cancer, uh, often young mothers with metastatic breast cancer, as I often say, coming to try to figure out how to say goodbye to their children. And my interest in... Um, in the whole environmental health field, really, has been driven by how not okay it is with me that we do such a good job helping young mothers with metastatic breast cancer figure out how to say goodbye to their children. But it's not, it's, it is not my idea of a good time, you know, that this is our situation. And... Um, and so over the years, you can't help but notice some things, you know, which are, quote, anecdotal. But the number of times that the breast cancer diagnosis is preceded by a divorce or a job loss or the death of a parent or whatever it is, is just phenomenal. I mean, we have this intake questionnaire, you know, what are the major stresses, prior major stresses? And there it is, you know, divorce, my father died, mother died, whatever it is, you know, I lost my job, whatever it is. So that's one big fact. But the thing that's come to me more recently is that we've started doing these four-day retreats 
for young breast cancer survivors uh, in coalition with uh, a young breast cancer survivor network in the Bay Area. And I have to tell you that because we ask people to send biographical letters, everybody writes these biographical letters, and, and you know, the level of biographical casualty across the board uh, is high. So, you know, you'd be astonished just in the cancer help program too at how many women talk about sexual abuse as ch children and so on. So, you know, just the, the core level of... But what really strikes me is that when I look at the young women with cancer, breast cancer, who come on these shorter retreats and I look at their bios, and the level of early, of childhood casualty is just astonishing to me. And so, quote anecdotally, I think that the number of young women who receive, quote, what Rachel Remen calls don't live messages when they're small children, you know, I think that that sets up patterns, not only for breast cancer, but it sets up patterns of later illness if you're in effect told or treated in a way that it seems that you're not valued as a life, right? That maybe, you know, it, people talk about low self-esteem as a, as a marker for it. But, and, and then, you know, I, I, we have colleagues who work with... Uh, uh, our colleague who's here, Cynthia Lee, D Dr. Cynthia Lee from uh, Berkeley, works with many uh, people with complex chronic illnesses and takes a functional medicine approach to it. And, um, and again, uh, I'm struck um, by my interaction with people with complex chronic illnesses at how frequently early childhood uh, abuse or trauma, which is then often triggered or re-triggered by later trauma, you know? And in fact, the, the treatment of the cancer itself can be a re-trigger of earlier abuse trauma. And I, and actually it comes back to your book because you couldn't discuss everything, and this is an impossibly vague area from a science point of view. But I think, um, I think that this question of, of what our souls carry uh, from childhood onward, or our psyches, or whatever you want to call it, psyche, soul, it doesn't matter. Um, I just think this early, um, this early trauma is intense. And then the other thing I'd say is that Different, the other thing I'd say to counterbalance that is that different individuals and different cultures have different adoptive capacities to process this early trauma. So if you have early trauma, but you are in a family or a cultural system that supports you in overcoming the early childhood trauma, I think that matters. But if you have early childhood trauma and your family and your cultural system has no supportive matrix for helping overcome that, I think that's a further risk, not only for breast cancer. So the reason I'm bringing all of this up is that, that um, I read this book 
both with enormous gratitude because I, I mean, you know, this is, this, for 28 years, this has been my heart work. And so you have written a book that more than any other book I've ever seen addresses the ecological framework that makes sense to me. And it also finds limits beyond which it is difficult to go because it's so difficult to pick up the clinical experience of, you know, the things that can't be measured and that I believe also contribute. You've uh, really done a wonderful job of just describing the ecology of it. When you talked about the the, uh, childhood stress that's uh, experienced within a supportive context somehow Mm -hmm. uh, has a different outcome. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you're absolutely right with regard to the importance of childhood stress. The pedi- pediatricians have, have organized around this. They, they talk about toxic stress, and they talk about the lifelong implications of that. And they've actually got a publicly available uh, uh, book on it or mm-hmm. report on it that they commissioned uh, because they see this as being so relevant to so many diseases and disorders later in life and function later in life. And it wouldn't at all surprise me. I mean, so you're, you're, you're describing the breast cancer, but you, they, they describe others as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, we're setting the stage, creating the conditions out of which certain things emerge. And if we think about going back to those baseline conditions, about the origin, the real origins, where we should, where we should be investing our time and resources and energy in trying to reduce some of these uh, there's little we can do about parental death often, but there's much that we can do about the effects of it. And if you think about the other sources of stressors that we've designed into our society mm-hmm. and trying to design those out, uh, mm-hmm. not that stress, all stress is bad, but this toxic stress, this unrelenting stress that doesn't land in a place where there's support and help to get through it. You get regime shift. You get regime shift. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's so much more we could talk about here, but I, um, I wanted to turn to Cynthia Lee um, for a moment, um, who has worked with many of these issues for a long time. And Cynthia, as you listen to the conversation, any thoughts or reflections about how this fits with your view from functional medicine of these issues? Um, so I don't know if everybody's familiar with functional medicine, but it's a it's, it's kind of an emerging field within integrative medicine where we basically try to apply something close to this ecological system of health into direct patient care. And as you can imagine, it's incredibly complex to do because it is sort of a population, you know, an ecological system approach, but we're still working one-on-one with individuals or with families. And so it's, um, you know, it's emerging and everybody sort of is developing their own style. Um, but, I mean, what Michael and Ted have said about breast cancer, I mean, really is basically applies to any kind of chronic condition. It can actually apply to acute conditions as well. Um, but generally, people who come to me have chronic, unrelenting conditions, and, you know, either they have failed the current medical system or they have, um, they just want a different approach. And so... What you guys say actually about stress really, you know, hits home because that I think is the single most difficult piece for us to really deal with. Um, you know, it's relatively, you know, as far as diet change and exercise and then you can sort of prescribe things to people and they can kind of follow it or choose not to follow it. 
But as far as stress reduction, it's um, a lot of the stress. I mean, there's overt stress like they were referring to, but there's also unperceived stress. You know, we're born into this culture that's very stressful on our bodies. It's not normal. It's, it's stressful for our bodies to be on a monitor all the time, to be connected. It's stressful for us to be sitting all the time, you know, and so a lot of this goes very unperceived, and so it's it's challenging. You know, I can have people who have, they're on a wonderful whole foods diet. They are, you know, exercising, and they have a supportive community, um, and they're reducing toxins. But the stress piece, we can't get that nipped. You know, it really, it really impedes um, health and resilience. So, um, that's, I think, that's the most challenging. And piece. one of the, the feelings I have, both about functional medicine, which is a subset of integrative medicine, which is in turn the modern term for mind-body medicine, which in turn was called holistic medicine at the start. And if we, if we do, if we go back, really the ecological uh, paradigm of breast cancer or of cancer or of disease is really the holistic paradigm. I mean, you know, the original, was it Smuts, uh, Jan Smuts or whatever his oh. name in South Africa who coined the term? I don't know. I believe it is. Does anybody know that? Um, okay. Well, anyway, there's this South African philosopher, researcher who I believe coined the term holism or holistic. And so the, in its first manifestation in the last 50 years, 60, you know, 1960s, Holistic health was the paradigm that people talked about. And then that was too flaky, and so people began to talk about mind-body health. Or, and then it became academic psychoneuroimmunology or, you know. And so there was this, you know, it keeps getting renamed. And so this whole, the ecology of breast cancer is just, once again, a renaming of, of something that keeps getting renamed. As, as, but the goal is for the establishment to embrace this so at least in theory you get more systemic change and so uh, it will be very interesting uh, to see whether to see how the establishment reinvents the terms to make it their own because they always do you know that's how it works and so you know we call it the ecology of breast cancer it will probably come out as you know, a multi-causal disease or some language like that that is neutral enough not to scare anybody but embraces the complexity and then the complexity and the ecological factors get woven in in ways that don't disturb the wah of, you know, the establishment in some way or other. Um, I wonder, though, picking up on Cynthia's first point about applying, I talk about applying these things at a population level, and then you say this challenge is applying this as sort of an individual person on a one-on-one -on -one basis, whether we, we can imagine uh, ways that people who, like you and others who are, are interested in functional medicine can begin to think about crossing that crossing into that public health framework and into that ecological framework uh, so that we begin to explore opportunities for doing that. So your work on stress reduction, uh, improved diets and exercise and so forth in your individual practice, you can become a voice also for how do we apply this more broadly in your community. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and is there a role for individual practitioners? You may already be doing that in your community, I don't know, but um, 
because I, I do think that what this invites is uh, looking for new partnerships and, 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 and collaborations with, with across uh, disciplines and professions and so on that haven't typically worked together. So I think with city planners, with, with schools and so on, uh, to begin to have that conversation is okay. worth exploring. I mean, the thing is, is that ultimately, I mean, I think, you know, this is a paradigm shift. And so how do you get someone who is thinking or living in an old paradigm to adopt the new paradigm? You know, it's, they're still in this existence and then we're over here. And, you know, neither one is right or wrong, but something needs to shift here because it's not working. And so generally what I've seen, and I know a lot of functional um, physicians have seen as well, is we do work with individuals. However, when they follow, you know, they're not, you know, they don't necessarily know the whole paradigm that I'm operating in, but if they follow the prescriptions and they do, you know, as, you know, as we sort of agreed to, you know, come up with a plan, they experience pretty deep healing beyond sort of what they had expected. And then when the experience changes, they sort of become the ripples, you know, so there's a population shift but at a, you know, from the ground level up as opposed to top down. And so that's more, I think, um, their paradigm shifts when they experience something different. And so in that sense, you know, this paradigm, it's, it's um, I don't feel like I'm just working with an individual patient. I feel like, you know what, okay, you know, particularly with the women who are really, you know, the ones generally organizing around food. You know, if we can get that, their whole family, you know, kind of experiences a shift. And then, you know, whatever, their friends see and go, oh my God, you know, you look great, what's going on? So it sort of becomes this ripple effect. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that more and more. I mean, it used to be people who saw me were just people who understood, you know, it was like the environmentalists at the beginning of the environmental movement. Um, now it's just regular people who are like, hey, I just want to feel better. So, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes. So... Um, but absolutely, I think that more and more there's going to be partnerships on, on the population level and uh, people working together. And it'd be exciting to see doctors doing that, you know, instead of staying traditionally in our, in our bubble. I think what's important about this dialogue and why I encouraged uh, and asked Cynthia to join it is that um, I've said for a long time in the Collaborative on Healthy Environment that I thought that ecological paradigm of disease requires integrative medicine as a response. In other words, there's a perfect fit between what we understand about complexity, multi-causal, ecological paradigm of disease, and what we understand about integrative medicine, mind, body, spirit, however you describe it. What functional medicine is, is it's the specific language that is making the greatest inroads into the medical community because it's quite science-based, and you know there are a lot of straight physicians who are saying, hey, there's a body of literature I can look at, you know, there are different lesson plans, you know, so that, so that it, it, it is science-based, it's the science-based cutting edge of the broader field of integrative medicine. And so if you have, you know, just, going back to what we do in the cancer health program, but also what I do when I talk to somebody about their health, right? What do I do? I, I try to get them to give me a narrative of their life. I try to get them to tell me a life story of what the significant stress points were and nurturance points. So I understand their narrative 
their story about their life. And then I try to look at, you know, what the different major aspects, diet, exercise, stress reduction, group support, you know, those kinds of things, and where the areas are that they would like to move, right? And I try to see, because I have a deep sense, there's a beautiful line from somewhere, that every soul is born with its own medicine hidden within it, you know? I try to see what that intuition that they have is about how they can move toward wholeness. Now, wholeness may not always include recovery. You know, it is as profoundly important that if they're going to have to live with a chronic illness or if they are going to live with a chronic illness and then go into a dying process, it's equally important, extraordinarily important, that they can give meaning to the whole process and repair the broken life story that they come in with. So we shouldn't only talk about promotion of health in a physical sense. We should look at it in terms of the whole trajectory. We're all going to die, and we want meaning to accompany us throughout the process. Um, but just coming back to your book now, um, I really hope this book finds the audience that I deeply believe should be there for it, because you've taken breast cancer as an example. You've consciously picked breast cancer as an example of something that is part and parcel of all of our lives, you know? And the number of people in this room who have kids with learning or behavioral difficulties or have other illnesses, you know? I'm a DES son. You mentioned DES as a, you know, the first endocrine disrupting chemical known. If I'd been a daughter, I would have had a 50% chance of a OBGYN cancer, you know? As a DES son, I have a, you know, I think this tremor is DES related, though it's not in the literature, you know. And it was a feminizing hormone, and I'm grateful for having a much more developed feminine side to my being. So one of the things about these chemicals and everything else is we are changed, but it is not always a change for the worse. It is just a difference, you know. You talk about uh, Asperger's kids, you know, kids with Asperger's disease. They don't want to be changed back to whatever they call them, neuronormals or whatever they call them. They like being Asperger's, or at least the eye-functioning ones, they like the experience of who they are, you know? So we're, we're living in a world where we are being transformed, you know? But having said that, I think all of us would like to retain as much of the richness and diversity of life as we can. We can adopt to these other situations and find beauty and gifts in them. But it would be awfully nice if we could turn this thing around slowly. And I just think you've made a tremendous contribution to that. Thanks for, Thanks for being with us at the New School, Ted. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. You're listening to a conversation with Ted Shetler and Michael Lerner at the New School at Commonweal. So we have a little time for Additional questions? Any other thoughts or questions? Yes. I, I, your, your comment about designing, you know, this, you know, you talk about the system and how the system is designing this, you know, this, this, healthy, this health challenge. The system is not designed consciously. It's designed by, you know, commercial ventures or, you know, how, how the government uh, behaves or doesn't behave. 
but the idea of solving it seems to me to need to be a design. And I think that's what I really heard from you. Of, you know, if you, if you start to understand that there are all these things in play, then how do you design those places where you can mediate all of them to add to the health picture? Yeah, I, I, I picked up on the idea as well, as you can tell, and I, I'm glad it resonated with you. I, actually, there's an entire literature on design problems. Yes, there is. I know some of it. <laughs> and, and it goes, and I thought initially it came from the just sort of for, from aesthetics and architecture and so on, but it goes well beyond that. And uh, they, it gets into the whole area of even what's called wicked problems sometimes. But, um, but I, I think the metaphor is useful because it, it does invite you to think about reweaving the design. Well, if you talk about change and you were all talking about change and how do you get it, it seems to me that you have to sort of weave that whole idea of design, which is antithetical to our government's way of behaving. And they hide all the things that they do that may be good because it will have some challenge in some other way. So if you were to actually design a health delivery system that mediated and addressed a lot of these things, you would have a much better system, but no, there's no mechanism right now until the whole conscious of all these people that we're talking about making any decisions is raised. They don't understand what you're talking about. They don't necessarily have the background, you know, to, to make all the connections that are necessary to do that. And that's where your collaboration or working with all these other groups of people is so important. Good comment. Other questions or comments? Yes. I probably have, don't have um, this articulated yet in myself, but I wanted to revisit what you began with, which was um, the uh, focus on the emotion of grief. And um, recently, um, my oncologist said to me that she was surprised to see on the form that had asked me what the biggest stress was in my life at that time, and I think they expected me to say anticipation of treatment what, whatsoever, and instead I said my, my uh, feelings about the state of the environment. Mm -hmm. And um, she and I had a small exchange about that, and it seems that within certain spheres, if you broach that subject, someone will engage you, someone will bring forward their concern as well. Um, in your recent interview with Francis Weller, I was very um, moved by a number of things that he said, and one of them was that he said that he had felt that until age 40, he lived his life as an observer. And I think that it was his um, sensitivity that made him step back and that he had, subsequent to some work that he had done with himself and with others, had, had begun, as he's called it, to lean into life, and that a happiness had come from that. We began this conversation talking about how often this emotion of grief um, is, is something that a person with breast cancer can identify in, in herself. 
And I, as an activist from my early 20s on, I have to say, I, I feel like I've been carrying this load of sort of what is like a low-level virus in the body or, or the spirit. This feeling that when I look out, when I stand back from things, um, when you stand back, you can transcend or you can sort of go, oh my God. And we're in a, I think we are in a moment of dissolution. We're in a kind of dark age, and I don't know um, how we create communities who, given what they see in front of them, and we can, this, these, these observations that we have are innumerable. They have to do with power structures, with manipulation structures, with environment, with diet, with the way we've treated the earth. All of it goes round and round. But when you stand back from it, it's like Yates said, even the, even the sort of bravest heart can't wrap itself around this. So where are the places in our communities where we can begin to come together just to vent some of this grief that we feel so that we're not carrying it so singularly, um, so that we are not um, somaticizing it or carrying it as a kind of internal miasm in, in, you know, not, not just individually, but collectively. And I worked with students for 34 years um, in writing at the College of Marin, and I know that this generation coming along is facing this in a very different way than my generation did because um, things are so dire now. And when we asked them to engage environmental um, topics, all of it comes out in the writing. Um, so I guess my, my feeling about uh, the ecology of, of all of this is that this, this is a huge piece of it, um, this grief piece. Yeah. And um, how, how, if that is sort of where we're resting upon, if we fall back in ourselves, we fall back into that. How do we rise up from that as a population? Yeah, that's a... That's a, a great question, and I, I'm not going to try to respond or ask Ted to respond. I just want to pick up a few more comments and then give Ted and me a, a last shot at it. Cynthia, you had another comment that you were beginning to make. Mm, it's in response to his. Go ahead. I'm just trying to remember what it Okay. Oh, Although, I remember yeah, what it was. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say, um, one area of crossover that is slowly happening in the health fields is you know, more and more MDs are entering alternative and functional medicine. And so what's been helpful in the dialogue is um, the emerging research around epigenetics, you know, which really shows how the environment is starting to turn on and off genes. And that's hard science that, you know, any trained health professional understands. And it's, it's in a way that's non-threatening and that you can say, hey, you know what, actually it does really matter. You know, stress is doing X, Y, and Z with your genes, you know, chemicals, you know, this is actually what's happening with your genes. And so <clears throat> I feel like the more we can utilize technology to actually help us bridge these, these differences and beliefs is, um, you know, to speak a common language is gonna be really helpful. So there is movement, you know, it's slow, but there is, um, there's movement, you know, and I have, I have OBGYN friends who back 10 years ago when I told them about, you know, bisphenol A and other 
chemicals and trying to, you know, counsel their patients. I mean, they, they just thought, oh, my God, she's out in the Bay Area and she's kind of doing her thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, they, they're, it's, it's pretty well received now, you know, and it's, it's still individual in terms of what a practitioner will counsel their patients are, and a lot of it's limited with time. They just don't have time, mm. you know, to go into that stuff. But um, there's movement slowly. Yeah, that, the point about epigenetics is really important. I'd like to pick up on that in a moment. I just want to ask, are there any other... Yes, Oren. Um, you were talking a little lot about the ecology of breast cancer, and it seems like that breast cancer, you chose it because of all the research in it and probably because you're familiar, but it sounds like that it's really a preface to a book called The Ecology of Illness or mm -hmm. The Ecology mm -hmm. of Disease. Or, or so, health. Or health. <laughs> and I'm wondering if that could be a true... I mean, I'm partially thinking is like, how would the ecology of HIV or the ecology of diabetes look different than this book? Mm -hmm. um, also, what would the ecology of illness be? And also, I scanned the book, and as you said, it is very dense. <laughs> and I'm wondering if there's a way to translate it, because I think this would be a curiosity to a lot of different people, mm -hmm. and if there's a way to maybe not popular science it, but in a way to translate it, because your book is all hard science. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is as hard science as epigenetics. So there is there's something there that, that physicians and potential policymakers and so on might find it as a resource if there was a way to translate it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to take two more questions, and then we're going to... So I've heard about design, about grief, about epigenetics, about the ecology of health and disease. I'm just kind of keeping... You had a comment. I did. The, as I contemplated more the ecology of... The, the title of your book, and then as the, the, the conversation progressed, I kept going back to the emerging information about the human microbiome, mm -hmm. and particularly, um, particularly the, the the microbiota of the uh, the GI tract, mm -hmm. and how that larger ecological perspective then goes back to an individual ecological perspective where mm -hmm. we have this ecological system within us upon which we absolutely depend for our survival. Um, I'm just was struck how that circle, the whole that concept of ecology, is not only valid in the, the macrocosmic sense. That's a beautiful point. It Thank is, you. and it's probably quite relevant to breast cancer yeah. too, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of how that microbiome influences the metabolism of the food that we eat, the metabolism of hormones. There's a little bit in the book about that, but that's a that's a largely unexplored yeah, area. That's important. a beautiful point. Last comment. You had one. Yeah, I was reading this book called Pharmacology. You may have heard of it, I don't know. But it's about a doctor studies um, farmers and different types, you know, chickens, cattle, um, vegetables, and the soil and the treatment and the way of farming and relates it to the, these patients that are diseased. So it's a very down-to-earth way of, you know, understanding a lot of the process that you're reporting on. So I, I just was going to recommend that for somebody that wanted to get down. To. So Ted, a whole set of really interesting comments. Any reflections on them? Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that the idea of design and uh, uh, and, the, and the ecological perspective is sort of resonating with people uh, and thinking about how it applies beyond breast cancer to 
other other health and disease. Um, and I really appreciated your comment about grief, uh, and uh, that it kind of falls in with what Cynthia said about sort of that un, unstated stress mm -hmm. that people are walking around with. You you talked about how you've been walking around with grief based on things for a long time. Um, it just seems to me, all of these seem to suggest to me that uh, it's a rationale for proposing discrete interventions, strategic and real interventions. And I didn't end this. Uh, I, I made an attempt at the end here to come up with some really practical ideas about what does this look like if we apply this across the life course in an attempt to try to reduce the burden of breast cancer, because that's what this was about. Um, and I don't know that I got it all right, but I, I do, I did want it to end well, Why don't you take a little time to say what Well, the specific, the beginning with, with fetal development mm -hmm. and what that means in terms of nutrition and vitamin D status and exposure to environmental chemicals that we know from animal tests are altering the trajectory of breast development. We know enough to act, in my view. Uh, childhood, and I mentioned a little bit about, so uh, we go beyond breastfeeding and, and, and what's the first thing that the kid runs into? Ads from McDonald's uh, that begin to, to populate that child's experience to the point where he or she finally gets mom or dad to, to take them to get introduced to fast foods and, and begins to shape the palate at, at a very early age. Um, and, and, uh, and what's going on in schools in terms of learning about uh, about uh, Oren has a lot of experience with this in terms of a, a, a school curriculum that integrates uh, information about food and geography and uh, health and uh, ecology, any one of a number of ways to imagine this. So I think the childhood experience is important. Uh, I've talked to people who deal with, with teenagers uh, in a variety of ways and adolescents. They don't know anything about uh, the, the potential risks of cell phones. Uh, they, uh, this, there are many uh, young teenage girls who don't have a clue that alcohol is associated with breast cancer risk. Uh, so, I mean, there are practical things to do at the same time that we talk about the role for schools and city planners and so on. And I really, I really want to get sort of uh, specific about this, that you are working, I might say to someone, you're working in an area that has an influence on breast cancer risk, and you don't know it, but you do. Yeah. And here, in, in this way, and here, and here's uh, here's what we might think about. It's a very practical intervention, a change in, in what you're doing. So uh, anyway, I, I'm still thinking about how it plays out and to make this more uh, accessible, but also what, what are the practical uh, recommendations that might come from this from a broader conversation. Thank you, Ted. And, and I'll, I'll just comment briefly on a couple of these things. The thing I wanted to add specifically on epigenetics, um, is it's interesting that we didn't start the Collaborative on Health and the Environment with the goal of doing the ecological paradigm of health. I mean, it wasn't explicit. But a large piece of our work at the beginning was on endocrine-disrupting chemicals from early on. And so what happened in some ways historically was that a, we had a broad concept of it. 
But the interest in endocrine-disrupting chemicals and the emerging science on epigenetics ineluctably led us into complexity theory and the ecological paradigm of health. And we got flack from colleagues who said, why don't you just stay focused on chemicals because industry is going to use complexity and the ecological paradigm of health as an excuse to continue polluting because they'll say, you know, it's all complex, therefore you can't demonstrate that chemicals are involved. But the fact remains that the ecological paradigm of health and complexity theory captures the truth better than any other framework that we've come across. It's not convenient, you know. It's not, we'd love to be able to say, guess what? If you got rid of chemicals, that would end the breast cancer epidemic. But it doesn't talk about light at night and, you know, shift work and stress and all the other, other things. So, so epigenetics really is a bridge point of, of hard science that you know, that helps us a lot here. The point about, uh, aren't we really, Oren's point, aren't we talking about the ecology of disease or the ecology of health? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, the microbiome point, I just think is a, you know, a lovely point. Um, um, and I'm so glad you raised it because it, it's a corrective to the conversation so far, which mostly talked about the larger ecology of health, and in fact, it is the, the microbiome of health that is related to the clinical mm -hmm. stuff and functional medicine and integrative medicine and where this all interacts. Um, the grief point, I mean, you know, deeply yes, um, deeply yes. Um, and, um, and I have a lot of conversations with people where they say, Michael, you know, you just put out too much bad news, you have to provide some hope. And I try to provide some hope. And if we follow truth about the situation of the world, it's not easy, you know, it's not easy. Um, so um, I'm just grateful to all of you for coming out this afternoon and sharing this time with us. And if, you, if I can ask you one favor, it is tell at least one friend who wants to know about Ted's book and how to get it. And if you have listservs or if you have other communities, in other words, this book comes out with no advertising budget behind it, no media machine. You know, this is going to spread by word of mouth. And I think it's an important book. So if you can help us spread the word, um, I think you'll be doing a great service and... Uh, contributing to something we all care about. It is available on the Science Environmental Health Network website, which is... S-E-H-N.org. Right. It's also available, if you go to Commonweal or to healthandenvironment.org, uh, you can download it there. It's both places. It's available as a PDF for downloading. Uh, I'm hoping that we will soon have a mechanism for a, print a way demand. to print on demand. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so that you can purchase a hard copy somehow, yeah. but that isn't. Uh, I'm told that it can be downloaded to iPhones and then switched to Kindles for people who read that way. Mm -hmm. So that's the state of it right now. To the Commonweal website, you can. Uh, you can get, if you go to the Commonweal website and then look up the Collaborative on Health and the Environment, which is one of the subsets. Click on Collaborative on Health and the Environment, and it'll on the front page. It'll tell you how to uh, download the the, the book. 
So thank you all, and if you have a few pennies to put in our box, they will be gratefully received. And uh, we have a whole series of podcasts we're doing privately that will be up on the website, um, including one with Peter Goldmark, who's the past president of the Rockefeller Foundation, past publisher of the International Herald Tribune, and a very interesting man. So the march goes on. The beat goes on. Thanks for coming. You've been listening to a conversation with Ted Shetler and Michael Lerner. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.